Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your stored shelves. So order now and prepare yourself and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888 441 7290, or go to com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern dot for my Patriot food. All right, and we're here. You're listening live to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News. Up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most just the radio chick, Annie, along with my courageous, colorful, and also intellectual co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I am doing just great so far. I'm looking forward to our three guests today. Hopefully we can learn a lot from them, as we always do with our guests. Yeah, we have a triple header today. We've got America's rabbi, rabbi, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, so forgive me, uh, Ari Spiro, 
Uh, also, we also have an author of a brand new book and the manager of Front Page Magazine, uh, Jamie Glazoff. His new book out is Jihadist Psychopath. And we have returning our friend, he's the director of Jihad Watch and author of the new book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, Robert Spencer. We got ourselves a really fantastic triple header today. A lot to talk about, a lot to do. I see there are people already in our, our uh, the, the teeth in backwards. Can't even talk today. Today is Friday. Thank God it's Friday. In our studio, also <laughs> people showing up in our chat rooms. Uh, we've got the video going up live over on uh, Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so let's get the show started. And everyone that listens to the show knows that we start off the first part of the show, the first few minutes, with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Trooper First Class, Walter Green. He is from the Connecticut State Police. His end of watch was Thursday, May 31st of this year. And his dedication is coming from three separate sources. One of it was his obituary that was in the Connecticut Post. The other is from TheHour.com by R.A. Schultz. And also from Current.com by Kathleen McWilliams. And it starts off. Trooper First Class Walter Walt Green, Jr., age 51, of Norwalk, passed away on Thursday, May 31st, at home after a violent battle with cancer as a result of his response and service in the aftermath of September 11, 2001 terrorist attack. Born in Stanford on January 14, 1967, to Walter Green Sr. and to Noni Faye Horton, Walter survived by his devoted and loving wife of 32 years, Suzanne Green, and his three sons, D.J., Thomas, and Cody Green. His father, Ted Green, and companion of 20-plus years, Danette Gathers, his sisters, Marilyn Guest, Gloria Nesmith, Natonia Worthman-Wright, and Pamela Green, his mother-in-law, Dorothy J. Brown of Norwalk, his father-in-law, Thomas E. Brown of Naples, Florida, and many family and friends. He was predeceased by his beloved daughter, Taylor Anna Green. Trooper First Class Green served in the United States Marine Corps for four years, during which he achieved the rank of Lance Corporal and marksmanship level of sniper before joining the Connecticut State Police on June 1st of 1990. He was a member of the 101st Training Troop. During the initial part of his career, he was assigned to Troops A and G, then to the Statewide Cooperative Crime Control Task Force. He served much of the latter part of his career in the traffic services. Trooper First Class Green had been a master instructor for motor services since 2008, as well as a canine handler for several years. He was an avid supporter of the Special Olympics and actively participated in the law enforcement torch run for many years. Walter was an avid hunter, enjoyed playing softball, and was a hardcore New England Patriots fan who relished to Jing at parties. He also loved cooking and spending quality time with family and friends. That only tells part of the story from thehour.com. Family, friends, and first responders gathered at Sherwood Island State Park for the wake of Connecticut State Trooper First Class Walter Green of Norwalk, who died on May 31st. A mild, steady breeze unfurled the American Marine Corps, and Connecticut flags outside of the pavilion where the wake was held. Green served in the Marine Corps before joining the state police 
and responded to ground zero after the September 11th attacks. Green was described by those who knew him as a hero and true gentleman. He lost his life after a battle with cancer, which Governor Daniel Malloy's office tied to his service after September 11th. The World Trade Center released carcinogens upon their collapse. As of this March, over 70,800 responders have developed cancer, mental health, or aerodigestive conditions, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. More than 500 people who developed such conditions are from Connecticut. To the side of the pavilion, a line of gleaming motorcycles faced Green's gasket. Green was part of Connecticut's traffic services unit. For the funeral, 250 to 300 motorcycle officers from various state and local police departments formed a procession to the service. The service also included a flyover of aviation units. Trooper Paul Leskowski described Green as a person with the power to brighten a room. Always had a smile on his face, he said. Another officer examined a photo tribute featuring images of Green gritting next to Michelle Obama, Joe Biden, and members of his unit and more. He was a fantastic man. Fantastic, he said, smiling with tears in his eyes. And finally, from the current Officers from across Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, and Rhode Island gathered at Sherwood Island, Island State Park, the home of Connecticut's 9-11 memorial to pay tribute to Green. Hundreds of officers in uniform attended the waterfront ceremony, and police boats dropped anchors offshore and kept their lights on in tribute to Green. After the ceremony, the boats turned on jets of water while the Westchester County Police flew a helicopter over the park. Bagpipers played Amazing Grace to close the ceremony. Tuesday's sunny, clear weather mirrored September 11, 2001, when the smoke from the towers burning 50 miles away in New York City was visible from Sherwood Island. The state's 9-11 memorial, inscribed with the names of Connecticut residents who died that day, faces Manhattan. Friends and family described Green as a wonderful man who was never without a huge grin. Those who knew him said his laugh was full of joy and everyone loved him. Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman also spoke at the funeral, recounting a story one of Green's friends had told her about how he once restrained and arrested a man who had been physically and verbally abusive to a woman. The incident took place in Canada, Wyman said, and though he was working outside his jurisdiction, Green did what he knew was right. He was someone who served with the highest honor, Wyman said. He is our hero, and he will never be forgotten. Today's show is dedicated to Trooper Green. It is also dedicated to all those brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to the brave men and women that defend this nation from its birth through today and into its future. So today we dedicate My Name is America by Todd Allen Herndon to these brave men and women. May God bless each and every one of them.
the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends
You're here listening to Southern Sense here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR, Media, the Lone Star, Daily News, and up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all of the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Of course, I'm the hostess with the most is the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host and author, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Uh, Curtis, uh, as we're waiting for the rabbi uh, to uh, call in, I do believe he's calling in from New York area. I, I think so. Okay. I'm not positive, but we'll, we'll be talking to him as soon as he does. Uh, he's got a couple of books book out. Uh, one of them is called Pushback, How to Bring Judeo-Christian uh, Morals and uh, Ethics Back into America. So it's going to be very interesting. Like I said, we've got three powerhouses, a triple header today. Uh, we've got Rabbi Ari Spiro. Uh, he has the website caucusforamerica.com, uh, followed by Jamie Glazik, who is the editor of Front Page Magazine. He has a brand new book out just being released called Jihadist Psychopath, a really good book. I had a lot of fun reading that. You know, as soon as you even start the introduction, you know you're going to love the book. And also we have returning to us uh, the director of Jihad Watch, and his book, History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, Robert Spencer, will be joining us. Um, we have a lot to talk about, and one of the big things that's come back in the news, you know, during the uh, midterm elections, uh, running right up into the midterm elections, we heard every single day talking about the caravan on our southern border, and it went off the news when they were doing the recount in Florida, Texas, and it's back in the news. And lo and behold, they estimate something like between 500 to 800 people are uh, criminals or members of terrorist groups. So let's bring on our first guest, first victim of the day, America's rabbi, Rabbi Spiro. Good afternoon, Rabbi. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Good afternoon to you. Uh, We have so much going on in the news, and I didn't know what to start with, but I'm glad I got the lineup I have today between you, Jamie Glazik of uh, Front Page Mag, and Robert uh, Spencer of Jihad Watch. Boy, are we going to have one heck of a show. So I'm glad to have the three of you on here. Matter of fact, you are. Uh, a matter of fact, your agent was pushing a book called um, Pushback. Funny, pun intended, pushing the book Pushback, Reclaiming Our American Judeo Ethos. And you know what? Good Lord, we really need to do that. When you look at what's going on in today's news and the uncivility that we have in here, it's absolutely stunning. I I grew up in the 60s, and back then you said, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Uh, you went to church or to synagogue with your family and friends. You didn't have such a division. I mean, we had the Vietnam War, yes, uh, but the division that we see in today, I don't recall that growing up because I grew up in an area where I went underwent the busing, where they ended up segre- uh, desegregating the schools. So, yeah, you did have some race riots, but at the end of the day, when you had a fellow classmate have a parent pass away, I was raised Roman Catholic. I would go to that person's house and sit and have shiva with them to give them respect and honor. We still had it at the end of the day. We interacted as friends. And you don't see that today. Why is that? Well, because the Democrat Party now is obsessed with gaining power. It's no longer simply just about issues. Uh, it's about being in power and when that is your motive then you're out to destroy when you disagree on issues there is a chance for some type of 
socializing when you're not talking about politics. But when you're driven, as our liberals, left-wing Democrats, by power, they want to control every aspect of American life, and they want the wealth that comes with uh, holding these positions in government, then it is a quite different situation from back in the 50s and 60s. They, in order to get power, demonize their opponent. It's not simply, well, they disagree on issues. Americans always did. But then when they got to the table or to the restaurant or to the ball game, they could just uh, agree socially and put aside their differences on issues. But when you want to obtain power, as do the Democrats, liberals, over every aspect of life, you want to be in charge of the government and have that control and, and all the wealth that comes from that. And what you do is you demonize your opponent, which means you call him evil. He's always a racist, a misogynist, a homophobe, a, 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 a Islamophobe, whatever it is to get power, you demonize them. Now, if you make other people, in your mind, evil, and you're trying to make other people think that they're evil, well, then, you, of course, you can never be civil to them. You'll never uh, be social with them because they are evil, and they're sort of like the untouchables. You have to stay away from them. That's the problem. You know, it's funny because uh, our friend before put in the chat room, uh, he said capitalism has more sparkly attention than the love of Jesus. But this is something you speak a lot on, and it's funny because recently I had another gentleman on the show. His name was Bruce Hartman, and he wrote a book called Jesus and Company. And you speak a lot about business ethics and religious morality, Judeo-Christian beliefs. Uh, They do go hand in hand. If a person is morally... Uh, adhering to the Judeo-Christian beliefs, they will behave in such a manner where capitalism will prosper like crazy. When they fall aside and they forget those principles, that's when you end up with these large, greedy conglomerates such as Facebook, Google, Amazon. They, They throw those things aside, push religion and faith out the window for profit. And control. There, you know, there's an old Jewish saying that there are three things that destroy an individual and the people around him. And that is when a person is obsessed, lusting after wealth, more than what a person needs, but just wealth for the sake of wealth, jealousy, and glory, and What you have among many people on the left uh, who think they're better than other people, you do have an unsatiable appetite, not just simply for wealth, but for glory um, and the lust of, of, of power. And it's very dangerous, a very dangerous cocktail. What's wonderful about capitalism is... It gives people opportunity. Now, we can't take care of people. If you take care of people, that means you're treating them like babies. If they're sick, you take care of them. If they're down and out temporarily, you take care of them. But what you want to do with adults is simply remove the obstacles so that they can have an opportunity on their own 
to work, to sacrifice, and to build something. And that's what capitalism does. It offers you that opportunity, and then it gives you dignity. Or if you have socialism, everything is closed off. You've got to fit into a mold, and you can't be creative. You've got to do what the government says. And maybe everybody's the same, but nobody will be spectacular. And everybody will be equally poor as opposed to reaching their excellence. You know, it's funny because people say, well, how does Judeo-Christian beliefs fit into it? All you need to do is look at the Ten Commandments. Everything you just said is within the Ten Commandments. You know, to not make any uh, graven uh, idols, not to put anything above the Lord thy God. But when you glorify yourself, you glorify money. You put that craven image above God. You you seek wealth above faith. Uh, You talk about, you know... uh, Greed, uh, not to covet thy neighbor's wife, servants, land. That is all part of the Ten Commandments. Everything that we are just talking about was written down and repeated throughout the Old and New Testaments within the Ten Commandments, being continuously spoken about in all parts of Scripture. Idolatry goes beyond just wanting wealth. There's nothing wrong with a person wanting to be wealthy so that he can take care of his family and have security and be able to buy the things that are necessary for a good life, that's very important. But idolatry also involves the hedonism, where people, they so worshipped their lusts, their, their sexual desires, it was mostly sexual desires, they would make gods out of those desires. And by making gods out of those desires, you sanctify it. And that's part of what's happening today with many people that are in movements for a certain type of sexual license, which I think some of it is sexual depravity. But instead of saying, well, I just am lustful, they're making a god out of it by saying, well, no, this is part of civil rights. You know, and civil rights is a, is a wonderful thing. And they're making a god out of it, and you cannot differ from that god. People have made idolatry out of ideologies. For example, the communists, many of the socialists, they've made that idol- their, their, their communist ideology a, a, a god. And, that's, and they believe in the state. And God is either non-existent or way down there on the list. So idolatry is not just about too much wealth. Idolatry is about hedonism. And it's uh, idolatry is about control, state control. That is true. Versus, and control is power. Versus, power versus is, it's submitting God. to God. Versus submitting yeah. to God. Man, and it's, 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 if we can bring back, you know, the Judeo-Christian morality uh, back into our society, and I do believe vast majority of Americans do feel that way. They're just afraid to say it out in public. Yeah. You know, that's right. They, they're afraid to wear a "Make America Great" hat again. What makes you think they would wear a Star of David or a crucifix around their neck? They would be too afraid. A lot of people are just that frightened. The Judeo-Christian morality, or its ethos, its ethic, it's not about going to church every day or going to synagogue every day. 
in my mind, it's about a few things. Number one, the idea of liberty. To have liberty, as the Bible says, call out liberty throughout the land and to all the inheritance and all the residents thereof. It's about opportunity. It's also about looking at a person as an individual and not a member of a group. When you take people and you don't see them as individual people, but members of a group, well, if you don't like that group or if you think that group is guilty, then automatically the individual is guilty. That's the way it always was. No, it's about looking at the individual. It's also about capitalism, meaning free markets, giving people opportunity to choose what they want to do in life. There's always risk in that, but that's all part of being a human being. Being created in the image of God means that you do take risks. You have a conscience, you have a soul, but you take risks also because that's part of free will. That's part of free choice, taking risks. And the Judeo-Christian ethos, if you look in the Bible, the way the government was set up there, each according to the tribes, means local control. Let people decide for themselves on most issues what they want out of their life. Certain things, national defense, you have to rely on the government, the central government. But most issues, marriage, divorce, uh, abortion, things that have to do with schools, let the local people decide that. And then, of course, there's the issue of morality and knowing the difference between right and wrong. So it's not so much about being a holy roller. It's really a very practical gift that God gave us in a way to govern society. We look at the individual, not simply make a person guilty about what group he belongs to, morality, knowing the difference between right and wrong, freedom, free markets, and the idea of local control. And the most important of all, personal responsibility. A person is not a child forever. They are responsible for their actions. They should plan on their actions and be held accountable, and that brings maturity, personal responsibility. That's the core of the Judeo-Christian ethos. We are personally responsible. Why? Because we are created in the image of God, and God gave us a soul, and he gave us an intellect, and he made us in this image, which means that we can freely choose. We're personally responsible for our actions. Well, I prefer to say morality because it comes back to that story I heard so long ago when someone was asked what was the difference between an ethical man and a moral man. An ethical man knows it's wrong to cheat on his wife. A moral man will not cheat on his wife. That's why I prefer to say moral over ethics. Because anyone can say, well, I'm an ethical person, but it doesn't mean you're morally a person. I haven't heard that before. That sounds good. <laughs> rabbi. Hey, I taught the rabbi something. <laughs> Go ahead, Curtis. Rabbi, yes. do you see parallels between what's happened in the past and today? Say, for instance, when Moses Moses went up into the mountains, the people below, they wanted a God to worship. Not only that... Mm-hmm. They got sexually perverse, and they did a lot of things. Sound pretty much like, like you know, what's going on today, especially with this um, this movement to um, to um, kind of like take away the name of God from it. You know, every phase of our a pub, you know, public life. Mm-hmm. 
I think that a lot of destruction in life comes because of hedonism. As you said, when they danced around the golden calf, it was to have license for a promiscuity, um, men to men or women to women or someone else's wife or all types of things. That's part of the, uh, the lust that we have to control. There's nothing wrong with sex. It's a great thing. God implanted it in us. But there are certain boundaries. And I think, though, that most fights in the world end up being either you are for God or you are rebelling against God. Communism was a rebellion against God. Part of socialism is a rebellion against God. Nazism didn't believe in God. Islamism does not believe in the God of the Bible. Everybody's allowed to have a God, but uh, we believe that there's one true God. It's the God of the Bible, and um, that is a, a... Because people believe in one God doesn't mean they're believing in the same God. We know God by his word, by his teachings. So I think the sexual revolutions is also a rebellion against what God stands for, what he, what he orders. It's man saying, I don't want to be under the direction of God. I want to freely choose. I don't worship God. I worship myself. But I think that the analogy that today is found in the story of Ahab and Jezebel, where they decided to people of Israel and take away their distinctiveness, their holiness, what made them special, and said that you're going to be like everybody else, which in those days were pagan. And the worst part was that they were able to enlist all these people who called themselves prophets. And they were really false prophets. And these false prophets, in the name of God, tried to twist everything and influence people to rebel against what had been God's law and the distinctiveness of the ancient land of Israel. False prophets. And I think that's what we have today. So many people, they might be um, ministers or rabbis or priests spouting this stuff, this, this, this communist-like ideology and, and so many people in government espousing what really is hardcore hedonism all in the name of these uh, new gods of tolerance. Tolerance is good, but not if you make a god out of it because you cannot tolerate that which is wrong or that which is intolerable. And uh, so I think we're a, a, a civilization, a country here full of false prophets using God's name to uh, turn the people away from the word of God. You know, I, I find the rise of socialism, the fascism and everything else, and the worst part is is they, they misuse the words because uh, you have now the Antifa movement, and the very first time they came out with the riots in Berkeley, the second I saw them, the first thing that went through my mind was Kristallnacht, uh, the brown shirts. And I've said this since the very first time I saw it on the screen. I say, this is fascism in true form, but yet they call themselves anti-fascists. You have Ocasio-Cortez, the new elected representative out of New York, uh, equating what's going on to the, at the border with the Holocaust. You, you have them on the left coming up with these imagery of the Holocaust and Nazism and yet calling those of us on the conservative side, those of us on the religious right, the Nazis. 
the attacks, the falsehoods made against us is, is stunning. Do you think there's going to be a stop to this? Is there an uprising coming from those of us on the right to get it to stop? Or are we going to be just so tolerant of them that we allow it to continue to happen? But we're so afraid of them because the media is on their side. So far, we haven't rose, risen up. I'm glad that you mentioned Atifa. What the left does is a corruption of language. The Antifa are the real brown shirts of today. They are the ones going around beating up people whose opinion they don't like. And mostly, these are people that are good, common sense, conservative people, love their country. So they're just thugs who want to beat up people. Just like the the brown shirts wanted to beat up people, they were thugs and they used Nazism as their banner. Antifa, look, they are literally beating up people, bloodying people. They are breaking glass windows all over cities. Nothing happens to them. Nothing. There's no FBI. There's no Justice Department. The police do nothing. And they're able to get away with it because they speak in the name of left-wing social justice. It's phony. They're not social justice people at all. These are thugs. These are brown shirts. But all you have to do is speak in the name of social justice, tie yourself to the left, then you're given the halo, and no matter who you beat up, no matter who you bloodied, no matter how much property you destroy, it's all okay. That's the way it was also with Black Lives Matters. Because they attached themselves to the left, it was all okay. No, it's not okay to have a movement that says, let's kill the police. It's, it's just not okay. And everybody has gripes, but that doesn't mean you have the right to kill people or destroy property or beat up innocent people. But they're controlling the language the left is. So far, we've taken everything. Sarah Huckabee goes into a restaurant. They kick her out. Ted Cruz, they kick her out. Nothing happens. Our side is, you see, because our side is religious. And religion teaches us to be humble and to, uh, you know, be tolerant and love our enemies. And in that sense, the religion is tying our hands. Because the religion really shouldn't be read in such a way that you, you let yourself be a, a lamb uh, on the way to slaughter. But because we still believe that we have to be humble and humility and we've got to be patient, that these are all good religious virtues, we allow ourselves to be um, humiliated and uh, victimized and targeted. And These are bullies. I think people, this is my main message, you've got to... There's no absolute that you must all the time be patient or all the time be humble, not when it comes to self-defense, not when it comes to defending your family, not when it comes to defending your, your right to speak, your freedom of speech or your religion. Then you've got to be zealous, and then you've got to be a warrior. Even God says at times, I am a man of war. At times, you have to do that. And... um Thus far, we haven't done anything. Can you imagine if we had right-wing people, conservative people or church people, beating up everybody like Antifa does? My goodness, we'd be in jail already. They'd be electrocuted. Nothing's happened to these people, nor have we risen up. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't know when will happen. We have a Republican Senate, House, President, Supreme Court, governors, and nothing happens. Uh, and if we don't fight back, Yes, it will be like Nazi Germany or like these Islamic places where the thugs with the sticks 
win because people will first be afraid to speak, they'll be afraid to gather, and they'll just uh, be rounded up. Rabbi, I'm with you on that. But what do you say to people who will, quote, turn the other cheek, that interpretation? What would you say to those people? It's really so simple. I don't. I write about it in my book, Pushback, Reclaiming Our American Judeo-Christian Spirit. Turn the other cheek. This to your neighbor, who basically is your friend, who's always been your friend. But he got angry at you. You got angry at him. And then in his anger, he, he went beyond the boundaries and he said something or he, he did something. He's your neighbor. That's different than someone whose intent is to destroy you, your family, your religion, your country, your way of life. He's not your neighbor. He's an announced enemy. There's a big difference. You turn the other cheek to your wife and to your children or to your friends or your neighbors who are not your enemy, but all of a sudden they got angry. So the Bible says, now listen, don't let someone's anger, momentary anger, make you want to take revenge and destroy him, turn the other cheek. But if someone comes and they announce they want to destroy your values, your religion, your country, your freedom, they're not your neighbor. They're an announced enemy, except they're not an enemy with swords or an enemy with, with words or with or with, with, with the law, or, or with lawyers. That's not who you're supposed to turn the other cheek to. The Bible believes that you have a right to self-defense when someone is coming to kill you physically or to kill you spiritually. And to take away your freedom and liberty is to attack you and wanting to kill you. If a person can't speak freely, it's as if he's dead. But, you know, I was watching Fox News last night, and uh, Dan Bongino was on with someone else along with um, Geraldo Rivera. And they were talking about this caravan, as I call them, illegal invasion uh, at the southern border. And it got to the point where rocks and things were being hurled at the Border Patrol agents. And lo and behold, a couple of guys had managed to get across. One of them aimed a gun at one of the Border Patrol agents, resulted in a struggle and finally, after the guy was tased, they were able to get him to release the gun. Uh, turns out the guy has been convicted of several crimes, has been deported multiple times. And throughout all this, Geraldo Rivera was saying, how dare the Border Patrol use tear gas and other non-lethal methods of repelling this invasion? How dare they, these border agents, defend themselves and defend the American border? And I just looked at them, and I'm thinking, well, Harada, why don't you stand there on the border next to one of those border guards, and you stand there, and while these rocks are being thrown at your face, I dare you not to react. This is how Amen, demented sister. they listen, have become. I know, I know, listen, I know Geraldo. Uh, he, he loves to virtue signal. He likes to preen around there like he's the most moral guy. All they kept saying was, we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this. And then Sean kept asking him, but what can we do? He would never answer that. Mm -hmm. Geraldo, like a lot of people, would rather just like strut their wings and say, you see how wonderful and moral I am? I'm, 
I'm here criticizing. I'm standing on my perch criticizing those who are trying to protect our borders or their own lives. You can't do this. But we're living in a practical situation here. But then what do you do? You just let yourself be bloodied by stones? You let yourself be shot? He didn't want to answer that, Araldo. That's why Araldo could not be a leader. See, a leader has to deal with the practical. What do you do? Not talking here about sermonizing, about how wonderful you are. What do you do? That's why he could never be a practical elected leader, because he's not interested in solving the problem as much as preening how wonderful he is and criticizing those that have to do things that must be done. Uh, so uh, don't worry about Araldo, but you have to <laughs> you have to uh, you have to uh, defend yourself. And if these people come in. And many of them have diseases. Hey, Geraldo, are you going to take care of all those children here in the country that get these contagious diseases? Hey, Geraldo, while you're out there sermonizing about how wonderful and moral you are, what about the morality of protecting innocent citizens in the country from MS-13 gangs and Kate Steinle from being shot? It's a very selective morality. He's not worried about the American people. Listen, Geraldo's Geraldo. There are some things he's good, but he likes to virtue signal how wonderful he is. But uh, he, uh, what did he say? Yeah, we should get someone that knows how to speak Spanish and go into the crowd and tell them to all sit down. These people knew beforehand. Uh, they, they've come with an agenda. They want to attack our borders. They, basically, those that are sponsoring these people want to say that we as America have no right as a sovereign nation to protect our borders. There's no such thing as the nation state. This is more than just some migrants trying to come into America. They're being sponsored by people with a political agenda. Rabbi, do you think people like Geraldo feel that it's better to, to, to be kind of like sanctimonious above it all than to really get down there and solve problems? Yes, of course, he's that way with Israel, too. Arada will always tell you he loves Israel, but then he's never there to defend Israel. You know, Israel has the same problem, too. They have these Muslim Arabs from the Gaza who try to come over the border. They have knives, and they want to kill Jewish people. Uh, they have tunnels underneath uh, Jewish kindergartens in Israel. They want to kill them, kidnap the kids. They throw rockets. And then um, it's the duty of a government, my goodness, that's the one thing we expect from the government, to protect us from outside sources. It doesn't make a difference. Listen, what the left has figured out is like this. Don't attack a country with an army, because then if you do, everybody understands you have the right to self-defense. So they came up with this great idea. We'll send individuals, and they don't have uniforms, and we'll put some women and children among them, and so we'll call them families, and we'll have them invade a country. They'll throw stones and, and, and fire and everything, and, but you can't do anything because it's not an army. It's just it's men, women, and children. That's what they came up with. It's a great strategy. It's a great PR strategy. And when the uh, Israelis have to defend themselves, hey, because, you know, they have lives too, and they have children. It's not simply the, 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 the Arabs and the Muslims who count for the people in the caravan. American life and Jewish life is also important too, right? Their children are are, 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 are are important, too. They have to be protected. 
So Araldo would say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. He sermonizes, he's on the perch, he's on his, 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 his moral perch. That's why he can't be a leader, because under the leadership of people like Geraldo, um, American and Israeli uh, children and families and people would uh, be sitting ducks and victims, and they'd be knifed to death and or, or shot to death or burned to death. And Geraldo could say, oh, but I didn't do anything to, to, to hurt anybody else. That's not morality. That's just that. That's pacifism. That's all it is. It's pacifism. It's lack lack of courage. It's this. What was destroying this country now is all this self righteous virtue signaling. How one. I'm just amazed how insecure people are. In order to show and how vain they are, in order to show how wonderful they are, they'd allow the uh, their fellow citizens to be uh, get diseases and be raped and criminalized. Vain people, very vain people, the arousers of the world. Well, what they do is they do that uh, psychological game where, hey, listen, they're they're the victims, the ones that are hurling the insults, the rocks, the Molotov cocktails, the ones that are coming in here to do us harm. No, no, they're the victims. They're the true ones, not those of us that are being attacked. No, we're not the victims. They are. So we have to feel bad for them. We have to, to tolerate their bad behavior. And we have to well, the way it count is. out to in, them in, and amend to them. In, in, in Western societies, if you're poorer than someone else, you're a victim. If you're a minority, you're a victim. Now, I'm a Jewish person. I guess I'm a minority, but I don't feel like a victim. But, um, you know, if you're a minority, so automatically you're a victim and the other person is, 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 is from the majority must be a Genghis Khan, a terrible person. But it's also because of the media. People decide, they're very influenced by the media, and the media always makes them victims. You know, you look at them and they look poor, they are poor, so they're the victims. And we're terrible. And um, even when Kate Steinle gets um, stabbed, the, the, the left doesn't care, and the media doesn't care because she's a wealthy, white person, so... She's not a victim, so it's it's okay. What happens to her, who cares? And um, it's a problem. I don't want to be considered a victim. I'm Jewish. I'm proud of being Jewish. And I guess we're a minority. What, there are only about five, six million of us here in America. But I don't want to be considered a victim. I don't want to be considered a minority. Uh, this is what's great. I'm an individual person who lives in America. I have a certain faith, a certain religion. I have a certain history. But I don't want to be looked at that way. I don't want anybody's pity. And I want to be held accountable, and um, I can't because I'm a minority or a victim say, well, I can kill the police because, you know, um, I have a grievance. Everybody has a grievance, but you've got to act like a, like a gentleman. You've got to act like a lady. Just because you have a grievance gives you the right to kill people? I've I got to tell you a funny story because uh, I'm half Italian. And my grandmother and I were talking one day, and she goes, Anuch, I tell you, the only difference between an Italian and a Jew is we put a tomato in our chicken soup. <laughs> so, yes, we're all the same. Just we put tomato in our chicken soup. I like all these groups. Oh, I like man. the Italians. I like the Irish. I like the Spanish. We, we work with a lot of Spanish. I like them all. But I don't like when people try to victimize themselves and that way get a political advantage because I'm a victim I, I have a political advantage over you I don't like that so I've enjoyed this very much but you know we have the uh, Sabbath coming up here on the east coast of New York it starts about 4.05 and once that happens 
I can't uh, watch TV or be on the radio or drive my car. And uh, in about an hour before that, I got to start, not my wife and I, we have to start preparing because we don't cook on the Sabbath. So we got to prepare all that. We've got an hour now to get all of our food prepared. I've, I've enjoyed this though very much. Oh, believe me, I know exactly what you're doing because I used to be a cop in Bushwick, Williamsburg, along with the Hasidim. So, yeah, we had to help them turn off the lights and stuff and park their cars for them. So, yeah, it was one of the things we did Bushwick as a cop at, over in Williamsburg. Bushwick Avenue, uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, was a terrible neighborhood. All the way out from Bushwick in, in Williamsburg, all the way out to, uh, towards uh, you know the end, end of Brooklyn before the Jackie Robinson. And believe it or not, and you never walk there. And believe it or not, Bushwick now is becoming another one of these trendy millennial neighborhoods, just like Bed-Stuy became. Even Williamsburg is trendy in Bushwick. It's just unbelievable. Where, where 15 years ago, nobody would walk there, and now you got people paying millions of dollars to live there. Who knows? All right, guys, we will see you. All right, thank you, Rabbi, and enjoy the Sabbath. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yeah, take care. Take All right. care. Check out, you too. Check out his website, which is caucusforamerica.com. He does a lot of good work. Uh, I didn't get to half the subjects I wanted to talk to him about. I wanted to discuss you know, Jerusalem now being the capital of Israel and the prophecies that are becoming from the Bible because now Jerusalem is recognized as the true capital of Israel. And uh, we had also recently Mark Lamont Hill, former CNN uh, host, in a U.N. speech uh, saying that Palestine should be pushed from the river to the sea, basically it would mean the destruction of Israel. So fortunately, he was fired from CNN, but there's so much more to talk about. Um, we should have uh, Jamie Glazoff from the uh, front page magazine calling in shortly. Uh, so if we see his number coming up in the uh, show thing, uh, let me know, Curtis. Uh, anyway, ah, so much more to talk about. You know about. that Mark Lamar Hill... That Mark Lamont Hill, he used to be on um, Fox a lot, and uh, yeah. he always came across as an intellectual, but boy, was he just so wrong, you know, on, on both the, the side of history and, and facts, but, um, you know, I'm I'm glad, you know, karma has caught up with him, <laughs> as I, I, I okay. wish that it would with the Clintons, I really do. I think, they, you know, they're going to get their just due. Clintons and Obama. Yeah, I, I I think so. And Warp is correct that saying from the river to the sea is genocidal talk because what they're talking about the river they're talking about is the Jordan River uh, to the Red Sea, which would encompass all of Israel. So by saying push from the river to the sea is saying to destroy Israel, and that is genocide. And Warp, you've got that one hundred percent right. Uh, so. We've got a few minutes before our next guest calls in. So um, I want to talk briefly before we get our guest in, Curtis, that uh, you and I discussed this off air, just to let our listeners know that December 7th, we're going to be going on a temporary hiatus. Uh, Curtis and I have some health issues that we need to uh, take care of that I've been putting off after my last little cardiac scare. So I've got some stuff i got to do, and you do too. So it's not going to be permanent. Yeah. It's just going to be a temporary uh, so we will be back sometime probably the end of January or February. Uh, but with that, you know, we both realize that we have to do certain things and take care of ourselves in order for us recharge to recharge our batteries. 
<laughs> with these quality <laughs> shows that we do. So um uh, don't want people to think that we're we're gonna be ducking out and not coming back at all. Uh but meanwhile I'm fighting a kitten right here right now. I've got puppy trying to climb onto the keyboards if you watch. <laughs> Uh, I'm just sending a note over to uh, our agent here uh, just to have Jamie call in. Uh, Just bear with me now while I do that. All right. Just sending that little email out real quick. Anyway, um, we do have a Skype caller in on the line. If this is our caller, please press one on your keypad. Uh, I hope this might be Jamie sitting here on the phone. That way I know that you are, I guess, not just listening in. I'll find out. That said, as I said, um, yeah, we're just going to be a temporary hiatus just for a couple of weeks, and then we'll be back completely recharged. Uh, Curtis just went after Sue, so let me go after our caller over here. All right. Uh, Curtis is just messing me up today. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, um, hopefully that Curtis will come back on with our caller so just bear with me as we try to get our act together here, which is another reason why we need our batteries recharged. Anyway, um, yeah, Southern Sense is going to go on a short hiatus. Uh, it'll be just for a couple of weeks, maybe for a month or two, but we'll be uh, back live at uh, come the end of January and uh, and February. But that said, that's why we have ourselves a triple header today. want to br- bring back in. Uh, the editor of Front Page Magazine. He's also a, oh, good Lord. Boy, do I need my batteries recharged. The author <laughs> of a new book called Jihadist Psychopath. And I was reading his book and speed reading through a lot of it last night, trying to get through with all my notes, which I've got about 14 pages of printed out notes here. So let's bring on Jamie Glazov. Good afternoon, Jamie. How are you doing today? Very good. An honor to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, you've got this uh, book out, which I happen to love. It's come, when is it being released? Because I got the editor's copy. Uh, in uh, in about three weeks, December 18th. Ah, happy, good date. Just before Christmas, in time for people to put this in the stocking of their favorite leftists. It's called. It's a great Christmas hat. present. It's a great Christmas <laughs> present. As I said. Well, that's what I said, because uh, I... My New Year's resolution every year for the last four years is to piss off one leftist a day, and I've been keeping that resolution. <laughs> so I have a couple of people I'd like to stick this in the stocking. The book is called Jihadist Psychopath, How He is Charming, Seducing, and Devouring Us. Uh, it is an excellent book. What, matter of fact, because I've got the three of you on, Rabbi uh, Spiro and Robert Spencer, all three of you have been preaching the same thing how we are being hoodwinked by the jihadists and by the left into becoming, we are the, even though we're the victims, we end up being the bad guys. Yes, absolutely. I'm sorry, that was a question to me? Yes, it is. (laughs) Oh, okay, fantastic. Well, 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 yes, absolutely. Well, there's a game of deception going on, and they're very, very successful at it and uh, my focus in my book was for years i had studied how psychopaths operate in terms of seducing and capturing their victims and uh, as i studied that and then as i looked at the, the terror war and i looked at the islamization of the west and of america i began to see that the tactics were actually exactly the same 
And so that's what my book is about because the jihadists, in terms of their stealth jihad and all the tactics that they're practicing, it's actually exactly the same process in terms of what psychopaths do. And there's a, you know, I don't want to give too many spoilers alert. You got to get the book, but hey, it's 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 step after step. There's a whole bunch. There's a, there's a charming stage. There's a seduction stage, and then all of a sudden, once you're captured, all of a sudden, the abuse that's being uh, perpetrated against you, you're actually being accused of being the perpetrator, and the perpetrator is making himself the victim. It's really scary, and they are succeeding. Well, you know, when I was reading your book, and um, you deal a lot with the jihadist attitude in the book, I thought to how the birth of Islam came about. These are the very same tactics Muhammad used to establish Islam in the world. First, you know, as you said, you're charming, you know, seductive, and then all of a sudden, once he has you in his grip and you become his victim, his prey, and you're trapped where you can't get out, then he pounces. Well, absolutely, and uh, it's historically based on Muhammad, and and also very frighteningly enough, when you read the Quran, and Nani Darwish has been excellent on this in her work, where he, she has shown the difference between the God of the Bible and Allah of the Quran. But we also see, in terms of even deception, we know that the Quran teaches that Allah is the greatest of deceivers. So, you know, when, when you even begin to explore the Islamic literature and their texts and their Islamic theology, you see a, a, a mutated carbon copy of all of this. Well, it's funny because I've got my Quran on the mic table. I'm putting it up in front of the camera so people can see. This is my copy with all my notes on it. And uh, we had over here a number of years ago a seminar. It was a five-part seminar, Love Thy Muslim Neighbor. And I showed up with Quran in hand, and uh, they weren't too happy with me. Uh, because <laughs> on the final day, they had an, an imam there, and he started to recite passages of the Quran. I think it was 928. I ha- may have that right or wrong, because I don't have it memorized. I just have it bookmarked. And he started saying that, you know, the Muslims may be uh, friends with the Christians and Jews. And he says, well, it's in the Quran, and he, he gives the passage. And I stop him right there, and I says, you didn't say the rest of it before Muhammad, meaning those born before Muhammad came into existence, you're forgiven. It's okay if you were Christian and Jew, but once Muhammad was here, then you either must convert or must treat them as a, an enemy and slay them. And it's oh, like, absolutely. Oh, you're not, yeah. it, mm-hmm, and they mm-hmm. do this over and over again, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And see, and you're a very knowledgeable person who doesn't allow that, whereas many people do not, they are not equipped with the information. And so just one quick point there in terms of the tactics of the psychopath, because as I show in my book, one of the tactics is during the romance stage, you will see that um, in, in the world of the psychopath and of psychopaths, they always tell the victims that they're romancing that they're a lot alike. You and I are a lot alike in this way, and this way, and this way. And and then when, when I was studying stealth she had, and when they do this interfaith dialogue, you know, and, 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 and the, the communities that are under siege 
are so desperate to be deceived, you know, and so all the, all of, you know, we see so many Westerners, you know, they're, they're just salivating. Oh, 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 deceive us, deceive us. And, 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 you know, the stealth jihadists are coming in and even in this interfaith dialogue, as I'm saying, they're coming in saying, we're so much alike. We're so much alike. Oh, you have Jesus. We respect Jesus. And then so many people in the Christian faith are just, oh, they're just in ecstasy and euphoria because now we're going to hold hands. Now we're all going to get along. They're just like us. We believe in Jesus and they respect Jesus. And then there's that little matter that they don't tell us, that Islam does not believe that Jesus is divine, that he's a member of the Holy Trinity, and that he died on the cross for our sins. And so just think about that a little bit. Let that sink in. Think about the person that tells you, I respect Jesus. Oh, but by the way, he didn't die on the cross. Something very dark's going on there. And that's one of their tactics because they come with these smiles and with and with with this deceit, but but there's 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 this thing where we're all alike. We're all alike. We all want the same thing, but the truth is actually the opposite. And I love it when they turn around and say, "Well, Allah preaches to us that we come to religion in peace." No, the passage reads, "We come to religion in Allah." And Allah doesn't mean peace. Allah means submission. Islam means submission. So you're telling us to come to you and submit. You're not telling us you're coming to us in peace. So when they use these things, we have to listen to what they're, they're actually truly saying, don't we? Yes, absolutely. And you see, not only do we have to be knowledgeable, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to avoid that human instinct to be deceived for the sake of just there to be peace, whether it's Neville Chamberlain, that that horrible narrative. But Kenneth Levin has wrote a very profound book on this called The Oslo Syndrome, and he documents how so many Israelis, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, were swallowing that Oslo process lie because the people under siege they so much want the conflict to go away. And, and this is what we're up against, because when those lies are being thrown at us, many, many people who are number one, as you're saying, they don't have the knowledge and they have to get the knowledge. But the instinct is to believe, because they want to believe, oh, if only I make the spaghetti properly the next time, then maybe there won't be violence. But the fact is, is that, you know, and I'm just using an analogy, let's say the battered wife did not make dinner properly and the abuser beats her because of the spaghetti and she convinces herself that she just has to make the spaghetti just a bit better the next time and everything will get better. And so there's there's a Stockholm Syndrome there. And this is what's happening in the West. We have to overcome this desire, this desire to believe that it that we can actually make things right and once we make things right our perpetrator will embrace us and not abuse us anymore yeah because there was a question in the uh, chat room from uh, bigfoot asking oslo i thought it was stockholm it's actually the same syndrome it was first noted when Neville chamberlain made that peace accord to try to appease uh hitler and then later on in time, it was also known as the Stockholm Syndrome. So it's basically right. the same thing that we're talking about. It, it goes Absolutely. by both names. But 
you also talk about once we are entrapped by this psychopath, jihadist psychopath, people are too afraid to admit that they've made that error, that they have allowed themselves to be trapped. And they're too ashamed, embarrassed, or fearful to even try to break those chains. Yes, absolutely. And uh, very, very tragically, our civilization is right at that stage on so many levels right now because many people are deceived, but many of the people that even have been deceived now um, they face a lot. Look, it's not just the pride and the ego. There's a whole other thing going on here, you know, that, you know, as we well know, those of us who know leftists very well, deep, I, I have many acquaintances on the left, and they'll even whisper to me and say, hey, look, can you just leave me alone for a few years? I have to get through university. I want to be popular with the crowd over there. I don't really want to argue politics because I know you're right. I don't know. It's a social life, and it's also an identity. And so many people, even though they know fundamentally deep down inside that people like us are telling the truth and that there is a real threat, they're terrified of the judgment of their community. They're terrified of the friends that they'll lose and the community that they'll lose. And they're terrified of actually seeing themselves in a different light because leftists, they build up this persona about how open-minded they are and how they're for equality and love and social justice. And you see people like Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer, well, you see the unholy alliance between the Islam and the left, they've molded the culture in such a way that Robert and Pamela are seen as racist and Islamophobic and haters and bigots. And the person that's stuck already as the slave of the Islamic and the jihadist psychopath, he doesn't want to be seen as bad like Robert Spencer and Pamela Geller. So it's easier to stay in the lie. It's funny because Robert Spencer is following you. Matter of fact, over at Front Page Magazine, you also have another friend of mine that submits you uh, – Someone that I've known for a long number of years, uh, since when he was an ICE agent, uh, Mike Cutler. Mike and I go back some about thirty years together. So, oh yeah, you've got a great magazine. Just yeah, Cutler's doing magazine, tremendous. Thank you so much. He does tremendous work, especially on immigration and national security. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I I love that I hear from. Jihadists, look at the great many things that Islam has brought to the world. Uh, but people don't realize that after 600 A.D., it basically went back into the Stone Age, and not very many things came out of uh, the Middle East at, at that time. And I was surprised because you have in your introduction, you wrote that a couple of years ago, more books were translated into Spanish in a single year than into Arabic in a thousand years. And a current recent study by the Atlantic Council found the Arab world is now publishing only between 15,000 to 18,000 books annually, as many as Penguin Random House produces on its own. Each was once the largest producer of books with an output between 7,000 to 9,000 per year. Although its output has previously been on the rise, it dropped by a whopping 70% after the 2011 revolution. And as of 2016, was only showing signs of recovery. Greek translate five times as many books into Greek as all 22 Arab nations combined. They want to keep themselves in the dark age. The less people know, the less 
intellectual they are, they more it, they're able to be uh, put under their control, their power. It, it's easier to have them to submit. Is that not right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there's, uh, you know, look, Daniel Greenfield, Robert Spencer, Christian Adams, um, who I quote in that section of my book, by the way, on inventions that never were. Uh, Greenfield, Adams, and Spencer have done some great work on this because they, on the one hand, this entity of jihad and of Islam they boast very much of all these inventions. And by the way, this is another step of the, uh, of the psychopath. Always faking, uh, making up a fake past of great successes. And this is what the stealth jihad is doing as well, what Islam is doing as well. They boast verbally of all these successes and inventions. And then all of a sudden when you look into it and you begin to investigate, it's all false that they try to attribute to themselves all this stuff about mathematics and algebra and all this stuff. But as Daniel Greenfield wrote a really fascinating article, there's actually a quote-unquote museum uh, in the Palestinian territories that's actually empty. So, you know, uh, absolutely. And what you're saying is crucial here because this is the bottom line. They need to keep people focused on surahs 929 and 925, wage war on the unbelievers, kill the unbelievers. Because if you start actually reading, if you start reading the New Testament or Socrates or Aristotle or even enter popular culture or widen your interests, well, you're going to be distracted. You're going to be distracted from holy war, and you actually also might start actually enjoying your life on earth. And jihadists don't want that. They don't want you enjoying your life on earth. They want you to be miserable and ignorant here so you can sacrifice your life for the paradise that they're offering you in the hereafter. And I love it when they say, well, it's about peace, it's about love. But the word love never once appears in the Quran, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And this is the thing after a while, even the golden rule do unto others as you would have done unto you. I mean, even, you know, we open up the Gospel of John and just begin to read it. It's actually, we begin to see that Quran and Muhammad is actually the exact polar opposite of the Bible. It is, it is. And um, I just had another thought, just went straight out the mind. Oh, good Lord, I'm suffering from CRS. Uh, oh, I know what well, it was. I got the Arab Spring. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the Arab Spring, because that was another huge propaganda. And I keep on hearing people on both sides of the aisle saying, oh, if only we supported the Arab Spring, we would have pure, true democracy in the Middle East. But that in itself was a lie. It was a false front, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And again, uh, what you put perfectly there is it's always these two sides that are romancing each other because that first side, oh, if only we had done this. Oh, the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring. You know, we go back to the Cold War. Oh, and drop off, and drop off, and drop off, drinks whiskey, and drop off, drinks whiskey, and he watches Westerns. You know, there's this, there's always this, this impulse and desire in the West 
that, oh, finally, finally, everything's going to be okay. They're just like us. We just have to do this. It's also a tremendous narcissism, by the way, to believe that, you know, that you're part of the script and that we just have to do this and then the enemy that hates us will change. So, okay, so we've got that dynamic there. Oh, the Arab Spring, the Arab Spring, right? And then just as you say, the Arab Spring, well, wow, the Arab Spring. What was the Arab Spring? Well, Daniel Greenfield's great work has shown that it turned out to be the Islamist winter. And Nani Darwish and everybody, you've got to get her her book. It's called Wholly Different. And she shows how, you know, she left Islam and... and, and um, why she uh, chose biblical values over Islamic values. But Nani Darwish has made a very important point about the Arab Spring. And a lot of times with all of these lies, it only takes one question. And Nani says, where were the signs during the Arab Spring? Out of all the Arab Spring, tell me one place in all those demonstrations in Egypt or wherever it was that this Arab Spring was happening, where was one placard that said, we want the separation between mosque and state, not once. And so this was not a Jeffersonian movement. There was nobody there that loved Thomas Paine or wanted the American Revolution, something like that, to break out there. There was, there, there was no impulse for real democracy, and Nani crystallized and unveiled that very brilliantly. Jamie. It was an excuse for the government to crack down on them and to absolutely quash the argument and to bring Sharia law to the fore. Absolutely. And again, very deceptive. And a lot of times, as, as we know, this is what controlled opposition is, that these very monstrous totalitarian entities, they, they kind of pretend, they create this, this aura of reform, but really what's going on there is a totalitarian movement. And, uh, and you only sometimes, you know, as I said, you just have to ask a couple questions. And so one question would be, well, show me the sign that wants separation of mosque and state. And it simply wasn't there. And you're exactly right. It was just a very, very clever ploy to uh, enforce a more totalitarian environment. Go ahead, Jamie. Curtis. When you, you take on Islam... And you point out all the violence and the hatred that's in the Quran. What do you tell people when um, those who are defenders of Islam in the Quran shoot back that, well, the Bible is full of violence and this and that, you know? What do you say to those people? Well, and no matter how many times we say it, they just continue to say what they're saying. It's like, you know, there's this mantra going on in terms of the denial, and, and it's very important for them to keep the lie going, keep the lie going. And no matter how many times you explain this, they'll continue to say this. And we see this in our media, by the way. They're asking the same questions over and over again, and they bring it up over and over again. The bottom line is, number one, we're not talking about the Old Testament. We're not talking about the Bible right now. We're talking about Islam right now. So that's the first thing that we need to say. The, the subject is not the Bible. There's not, and, and, and to begin with, there's not a problem right now in the world of Christians running around beheading people or, or you know, forced conversions 
mass terror. There's not a problem of Jewish or Israeli people running around the world creating uh, terror and spawning terror. So that's number one. And number two, there's a reason for that. And so the first thing we would say is when they say, oh, well, there's violence in the in the Bible. Well, number one, the most important thing is it's not in the New Testament. And yes, in the Old Testament, yes, there's violence, but it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. So this is a longer conversation, but there is not a command by God that there should be an open-ended war waged on 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 unbelievers for all time and place. There are specific descriptions of situational violence that have nothing to do with you and I. It's descriptive. There's not a prescription for war for all time and place. And that's why you don't have Israeli Jews today running around, let's say, killing innocent unbelievers in their view and then referencing the Old Testament. And this is why we, you don't you never have Christians that commit any violence that are quoting the New Testament. So the Christians and the Jews that may do bad things, and there are many bad people who happen to be Jews and Christians, quote-unquote, but they're being bad Christians. They're being bad Jews if they murder or if they rape, because they're going against their texts. Whereas in Islam, if you're engaged in sex slavery like ISIS and Boko Haram and the Muslim rape gangs in England and throughout Europe, they are actually referencing Surahs 4.3, Surahs 33.50, which serve as the foundation to having captives of the right hand, of having select slaves that are kafirs. And so that's the answer, basically, the beginning of the answer, that when, let us say, Christians do bad things, they're doing bad things in spite of the Bible and contrary to their teachings. Whereas when devout Muslims are following jihad or rape jihad, they actually have the text to inspire and sanction them. And look, this is all that great people like Robert Spencer are doing, by the way. I mean, People like Robert Spencer are slandered and libeled that they hate Muslims and all Muslim people. I mean, this is complete BS. All that Jihad Watch does, jihadwatch.org, Robert Spencer's site, all that Robert Spencer does is he shows the, the violence going on in the name of Islam, and he shows the texts that inspire and sanction it, and that's a problem. Yeah, well, the, your book is fantastic, which is uh, Jihad Psychopath, that people can get at your website, which is your name, Jamie Glazov, G-L-A-Z-O-V is your last name. They can go there and pick up the book and check out your articles on the front page. And thank you for plugging Robert, because he's following you right after you hang up. Um, it, it is an excellent book, and it explains a lot and opens up your eyes into how we can fall for these psychopaths and why we fall for the arguments. And as Warp put out in the, um, in the chat room that as you're explaining, you know, the violence that is prescribed in the old Testament is specific for a specific reason, whether or not they encountered a tribe that was just morally corrupt that God said, I can't have those people interfering with my people so that you must slay them to you know keep yourself from being corrupted. But they also point out, uh, the Inquisition and the Crusades, but the Crusades came out as a result of 
pilgrims being attacked as they went to the Holy Land. If it wasn't for the fact that we were being attacked, robbed, murdered, raped, uh, and held for, as captives for ransom. And the Inquisition, the same thing. The spread of Islam throughout Europe caused a backlash, which resulted in the Inquisition. It, it, it came as a response to what Islam was doing to us. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, we have to have this this wonderful, brilliant grasp of the facts like you do. We have to work on having those facts in our arsenal. And I would also stress, though, that all of this, no matter what you ever say to these people who are arguing these things, they'll always come up with something else. And that's what I've devoted my life to. I've devoted my life to trying to understand what is that psychology, what is that instinct when, for instance, I'll just give an example just the other day, very, very typically, I um, was walking with this one gentleman, um, and I said, uh, I said, you know, one of my main uh, goals and something that we do is we fight Islamic uh, female genital mutilation. And within the blink of an eye, within the blink of an eye, he says, oh, well, you know, that, that it's not just Muslims that do that. And it's very interesting. Why? Why is that so important? Why is that so important? It only took him a second and a half, under even a second, because the culture has trained him. The, the culture, the boundaries of discourse have already trained him to say that. Now, I can argue against that and then, or whatever it takes, but then he'll say, oh, but, the, you know, uh, female generation uh, happened before Islam, and it's not just Muslims. Oh, well, how about the Bible, or how about this, or how about this, or how, you know, what is that instinct? What is that instinct? And in the end, um, I'll just say this, that where, where the, the, the left is so monstrous and so callous, is that if they're and we know that female genital mutilation, very widespread under Islam because it's, it's based on Islamic texts and teachings. And so if we're trying to save Muslim girls, and by the way, 500,000 of them, of them at risk alone in the United States, if wonderful people like Elizabeth Yorit and FGM today are fighting to save Muslim girls, Muslim girls, we're fighting to save Muslim girls, and we are fighting every day to try to save Muslim girls, and we're trying to unveil and to expose the hadiths that serve as the buffer to this. And when the Islamic apologist says, oh, well, it's not just Muslims that do it, okay, yeah, it's not, yeah, we know that, it's not just Muslims that do it. How does that help Muslim girls? Like, just even that argument alone that a sin and a crime exists somewhere else in the world that we ideally also want to stop. Of course we want to stop female genital mutilation practiced by everybody, and of course it's not just Muslims. But when you say it's not just Muslims that do it, how does that help save the Muslim girls? So there's a callousness there, and there's a malice there. And they point their finger at us that we hate Muslims, but we're actually the people that are trying to save and protect and liberate Muslims from the savageries of Islamic law, and they turn their back on them. You know, I find ironic, though, it did, he didn't attack the fact that female mutil, genital mutilation is bad and wrong. He attacked the fact that other people did it. Well, it still doesn't make it right, right? 
I love it's that. Just, it's mind-boggling. I have a chapter in there where I go through all of these arguments, and in the end, how mind-boggling they are. Like, just think about a woman calling 911. Uh, excuse me, 911, and, and and no pun intended, right? But she she called. You know, imagine a woman calling 911, and let's say she's on the verge of being murdered or raped by a burglar or rapist that broke into her house or something is happening to her daughter in the basement. Somebody's just broke in. She calls 911 and somebody says to her, hey, look, this this happens all the time. You think you're the only person this is happening to? This happens in other parts of the world as well. So this is actually, the re- this, is, this is the left for you. Where they say, oh, well, the Bible, oh, well, other people do it too. Oh, well, what about this? Well, why does that even matter? Because right now we're talking about this and these victims that we're trying to save. And if it does happen in other parts of the world, we'll deal with that too, one stage at a time. But you see, they don't want to get to the first stage because what they're trying to do is excuse really what Islamic supremacism is. Absolutely. And I let you know, I've got Robert Spencer right with us here on the line. People can find you at frontpagemagazine.com, also at your website, Jamie Glazov. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. And your new book is Jihadist Psychopath. And I'm telling people they've got to read it. It's a fast read, and I love a book that is a fast read. The only thing that slowed me down, I was reading it in Kindle, and I was highlighting sections for all my notes. And as people can see, I'm putting in front of the camera here because we're up on YouTube and Facebook, pages and pages of notes I did highlighting sections of your book that I found fascinating to talk to you about. And we haven't got through one-tenth of what I highlighted, Jamie. Well, thank you so much. It, it it here it's it's great to hear that Robert Spencer I think you're saying is coming on after me. He's he's here with us now. Oh, okay, that's I fantastic. Oh, there's Robert. Well, look, yes. there's a saying. Sometimes <laughs> Hello, you have to bow. You have to bow down to a a man greater than yourself. And I have to say, Robert Spencer, he's the man. You got to get his book before you read mine because he's come up with well, a masterpiece. I got to tell you something very serious. Jihadist Psychopath is one of the most insightful and informative books I have ever read in my entire life. And so, uh, run, don't walk. But yeah, pick up a copy of History Jihad while you're on your while you're there. <laughs> okay, your checks in the mail, Robert. No, but on a serious <laughs> on a serious no, note, on I'm a serious, serious note. Well, thank you, Robert. But as as uh, as I'll, I'll say, and I, maybe we're complimenting each other here, but but uh, people will see that in my footnotes. A lot of work done by Robert Spencer. So, you know, just on a very serious note, this is a man that has paved the foundation with all of his research and knowledge. Uh, Yes, for us to write books. Yes, for us to get the truth out. But more, most importantly, what this is all about is protecting our civilization and trying to help and liberate the persecuted people under totalitarianism. That's a huge amen to that, Jamie. um, Did you want to hang out, or do you need to run, Jamie? Whenever Robert Spencer's around, I want to hang out because it's one of the coolest people to hang with in general. But I got to run, Jamie. Mix us some no, mix some martinis and hang and hang with us. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, okay, I can hang out for five minutes. Excellent. Okay, I love. 
I love it when I let my guests interview each other. I just sit back and enjoy it. But welcome Jamie, aboard to uh, Robert Spencer. I, Look, I want to say, I, I just want to say just very quickly, because I just, this is something. Every day on Twitter, you go to Robert Spencer's Twitter page, and it's almost every four, you know, it's just, oh, you want to kill, you know, there's just recently even, I think this was even an hour or two ago, you want to exterminate 1.5 billion Muslims on the planet. How does it feel to be such a hater? Then Robert says, provide the quote, provide the quote. This is slander. This is libel. And this goes on all day. It goes in one ear and out the other. And I just want to say, I know Robert Spencer. I've known this man for more than 15 years. And I know, not just from his work, but from my personal encounters with him and discussions with him, this is a man that cares deeply for Muslim people, for Muslim girls, for Muslim women and girls that suffer under Islamic gender apartheid at the hands of honor killings and acid attacks and child marriage and forced veilings and all the barbarities of Islamic law. Somebody that deeply cares and is fighting on the behalf of not just non-Muslims, but Muslim people. And it just... It 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 just it's it's just appalling and grotesque and disgusting that the most callous people on this planet that sleep all night long with not a worry on their mind for the Muslim people on on this planet and don't lift a finger to help one girl that's that's subjected to the barbarities of Islamic law that they point the finger at humanitarians and at civil rights activists like Robert Spencer and calls their call him names. So I just want to say Robert thank you for what you do and for all the libel and slander you put up with and uh we're fighting for you on your behalf. Well, Jamie, thank you very much and uh the reality is of course we know that we're facing the same thing that uh these people, this is the tactics, this is what they do, and so it's only just to be expected that they would lie and and uh, smear. It's all they've got, really, because they certainly can't meet us on the realm of ideas. Well, yeah, but Robert, you know, you work closely with Pamela Geller. You know, one thing I would want to ask all the people that call you guys haters and Islamophobes, name me one of these one of the uh, I actually was going to use a bad word. Okay, name me one of these people <laughs> who made a memorial grove for Axa Parvez the way that Pamela did in Jerusalem Park. And Axa Parvez is a 16-year-old Muslim girl suffocated by her father by her own hijab for not wearing her hijab in Toronto 10 years ago. And I know you work closely with Pamela Geller. You guys were doing a lot of this together, and uh, Pamela built a memorial grove for AXA in Jerusalem Park. When did and all the accusers that call Pamela names and you names, when did they ever build a memorial grove for an honor-killing victim? Yeah, actually, as far as I know, our memorial there in uh, Jerusalem is the only memorial anywhere in the world to the victims of honor-killing. And uh, that was actually the first thing that she and I worked on together. And it was, uh, I think, a very worthwhile endeavor because it was the only time that anyone in the West has stood up and said, we are not going to stand for this and we're not going to let you obliterate the memory of those girls that you have killed. We're going to uh, show you that this is not going to stand in the West. Of course, 
it would have made a difference had there been anybody with us uh, in this endeavor. But they're obviously the West is in full capitulation mode instead. And Muslims aren't the only ones who practice honor killings. You see, that's yeah. the first thing that they would say. And Axa Parvez is somehow forgotten. You see, when you make a sen- say a sentence like that, Axa Parvez is completely forgotten and pushed into invisibility. And so we know that Muslims are not the only people who perpetrate honor killings. And we also want to stop it there. The problem is, is that, Robert, as you will educate and, and tell us, the reliance of the traveler uh, literally permits Muslim parents killing their kids if they dishonor Islam. It's in the yes. reliance of the traveler. It is. There's no, there's no punishment for a parent who kills a child. And there are many uh, majority Muslim countries that have relaxed penalties for honor killing. If you can show that uh, if you're on trial for murder that you did it for honor, then you're likely to get off with a very light sentence in Jordan, in Syria, in the Palestinian Authority, and elsewhere. I uh, have all this. Uh, I've frequently posted the uh, details about this on Jihad Watch, and these things are readily available. But, of course, you're quite right. The denial and that kind of excuse-making is near universal. Just today, also at Jihad Watch, I put up a story about a book, a stupid book, about a suicide bomber who goes into a library and then he decides when he sees the people reading, he realizes that he's been misled and they have a good life and he decides not to kill them. And that, of course, is based on the assumption that poverty and ignorance cause terrorism, which is a false assumption. But in any case, the book was banned. The book was actually pulled from publication after there were protests. And the, this group uh, in, in Britain, this took place, and the group that was protesting about the book that pointed out falsely that they said white supremacists are a much larger terror threat in the United States than jihadis. Now, that's a false claim that uh, has been debunked many times. But I, I thought this is so ridiculous because even if it's true, it doesn't mean there aren't any suicide bombers or any Muslims who will kill themselves and blow themselves up in a crowd of infidels. Even if there are white supremacist terrorists that are all over the place. It doesn't change that fact. And yet this was actually presented as if somehow it's wrong to discuss jihadis because of the existence of white supremacists. Right. Um, Am I out of line here for asking a question or two? I'm not sure how this dialogue works. No, go ahead. I'm... I'm sitting back and I'm enjoying this. Go ahead. Oh, well, well, Robert. Well, it's 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 just a great honor to tap into to Robert's mind and uh, on these issues. Um, And so, Robert, now this guy, just connected to what you're saying here, this uh, individual, Muhammad Hijab, is that his name, that debater that just debated David Wood? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so just recently they had that quote-unquote debate. I found it very painful to watch, just in terms of tactics, because David is actually 
you know, he is the one that's providing the evidence and everything that he's saying. And it's and Muhammad Hijab, he's up there. He's actually losing the debate, but he's up there. Oh, look at this guy's face. Look at this guy's face. Yeah, no wonder. No wonder. I'm through with this guy. And then, uh, you know, most of the audience, of course, Islamic supremacists, and they're all cheering, and they're ascribing to themselves some kind of very weird victory that's not happening. And he's engaged in all this boastfulness and mockery and humiliation. Uh, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about that, Robert? What's going on there? I, I found it very eerie and very, very, it was just, uh, it, it's nauseating to watch because just his behavior overall, what, did, what do you make of it? I think that what uh, Muhammad Hijab was doing was demonstrating the superiority of Islam over the infidels which is not a rational exercise. He didn't even feel it incumbent upon him to uh, answer David Wood's arguments. He just heaped contempt upon them and upon David Wood. And it was, it's kind of a theater. It's a, it's a show for the audience. This took place in a mosque or an Islamic center or something, and <clears throat> the audience was all Muslim uh, with a very small number of people who were not Muslim and supporting David. And so he was just, uh, I think, engaging in the humiliation of the infidel. The humiliation of the infidel is very important in Islam. You have to make sure that the infidel knows that he is inferior to the Muslims. And this is because of uh, the Quran, which says that, of course, that the Muslims must fight against the people of the book, just primarily Jews and Christians, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now, we all know that that is the impetus for the state of subordination that is mandated in Islamic law for the dhimmis, the protected people, so-called, who, uh, who are subservient to and under the hegemony of the Muslims. But you see, the humiliation is part of it. They have to feel themselves subdued. They have to be made to know that they are underneath the Muslims and the Muslims are superior and the establishing the superiority of Islam is a primary imperative of Islam. That's why they built the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount to show that Islam had defeated Judaism and was superior to it. That's why the Hagia Sophia, which was once the greatest church in the Christian world, was converted into a mosque in Istanbul. And this was also to show the victory of Islam over Christianity and its superiority to Christianity. And so you, that involves, if you are showing that you're superior, then you have to humiliate your adversary. And so what he was doing was actually a classic jihad move in that sense. Uh, he doesn't have to m meet the infidel on an intellectual level. I mean, he made some token arguments, but as you pointed out, if you just take rationally David's arguments and Muhammad Hijab's arguments, David mops the floor with him. Uh, but Muhammad Hijab was communicating that even the debate was beneath him because the infidel was beneath him, and that's the natural order of things. And this is why the Muslim audience was so enthusiastic and why probably his star will rise in among the group of Muslim debaters who take on non-Muslims in these kinds of debates because they loved it. This is just what the sort of thing that... The, the, that is designed to play to that kind of an audience. And they, well, uh, well, 
They were I, want to, I want to jump in here and yeah. ask you both a question and have you both respond to this, because this is an article, Robert, you had on your website, Jihad Watch, and this falls exactly into what Jamie wrote about in his book, um, Jihad Psychopath. Uh, there was a, a Catholic bishop in Nigeria that claimed that hostilities between Christians and Muslim arose because Islam came to the country first. So therefore, it is the fault of Christians for attempting to convert people being enslaved to Islam to Christianity where they can have freedom and free will. Uh, how dare we do that? Uh, I want to get your, your reaction first, uh, Jamie, and then Robert, because you wrote the article, Robert. Um, let Robert go first. Go ahead. Well, this is uh, actually a, a, another manifestation of what we've just been talking about, that um, – he already has internalized this Catholic archbishop in Nigeria. He's already internalized his subservient position. And so he was asked to explain why it is that there's antagonism in, and hostility between Christians and Muslims in Nigeria. Well, there's one reason for that and one reason only, but he doesn't dare say it. And that reason is because Islam teaches jihad warfare against infidels. And jihad warfare against infidels means that you're going to be attacking them and killing them, and then they might be hostile to you. They might not like you as a result. But he knows he can't say that, and that if he does say that, then he might face reprisals and claims, as Jamie so, so wonderfully points out in Jihadist Psychopath, that uh, that would be the occasion for the Muslims in Nigeria to claim victimhood and to say that he's being Islamophobic and picking on them and endangering their community and so on. And so he knows he has to play this game, and he is willing and willingly subdued, subservient, and he toes the line. And so when it comes down to answering the question, he blames the Christians. He has to. This is his place, and he knows it, and he's assumed it. And, and, and so, Robert, also just to get back to Muhammad Hijab, for a second, he keeps bringing up this other Christian guy. I forget his name, but he's always going. You got to be more like him. You got to be more like him. See, David's James bad. White. David's got James. Yeah, White. yeah, yeah. This but is, I, this is I very watched him, Jamie. Who that is? I'll explain. But go ahead. I, I, I love, I love it when what I bring up is said is important by Robert Spencer. So <laughs> thank you, Robert. So, so, and exa- so, Robert. Yeah. So I just. Um, um, and I watch this guy that he's referring to, and he, and he looks like he's completely surrendered. So I guess it makes complete sense, right? He wants David. Yeah. See, David's, David keeps fighting. You got to surrender and be a dimmy like this Christian, and then we'll give yeah. you respect, right? Yeah, absolutely. James White is a uh, Protestant Christian evangelist, and he teamed up with Yasser Qadi who is the notorious Muslim Brotherhood-linked imam in Tennessee, who is on uh, an audio tape of a sermon of his saying that, uh, yes, of course, you're, it's, it's part of the jihad. You have to kill the Jews and Christians, and then you can seize their property, and so on. And they are filthy, and they're unclean, and all these things. It's just classic Quranic Islam. Uh, it's not as if Yasser Qadi made it up, but he said it. And the reason why this is important is because he was caught saying it. I put up the audio at Jihad Watch, and uh, James White had a, a public discussion, not a debate, uh, with Cotty, in which Cotty falsely claimed that this tape was doctored by Pamela Geller and me. 
and that uh, we had done it to make him look bad and that when he had tried to get us to take it down, we had six lawyers on him. This was all pure fantasy. We had nothing to do with that audio tape at all. It actually comes from a group called Americans for Peace and Tolerance, and uh, they did not doctor the tape. I listened to the entirety of the sermon, which is also available on YouTube, and he said it. It's not taken out of context or anything of that kind, not twisted, not edited, not chopped, nothing. And uh, James White sat there and listened and shook his head sadly at how terrible we were. So I contacted White. And I said, you've been misinformed here. Uh, I had nothing to do with that audio tape. I posted it at Jihad Watch, but I did not originate it. Uh, I didn't put it on YouTube and so on and so on. And he wrote back with incredible contempt. And it was very clear that he believed Kadi and not me. And this led me to go deeper. And uh, some people started writing me who were more familiar with James White than I was at the time. And they showed me that he had actually brought Kadi into his church and Qadi had lied repeatedly in ways that anybody who has any elementary knowledge of Islam would know. And White never contradicted him. And when asked why he was letting Qadi lie through his teeth and mislead his congregation, he explained that it was because he was really trying to save souls and he was trying to bring him to Christ and so on. And I thought, well, how is letting him lie to your people – how does that accomplish that? But he, he, he thinks that it does. And so the, uh, he's actually called Kadi his mentor. I mean, you're right. He's completely subjugated, and he's completely misled by this guy in ways that he does not realize. I myself debated James White on a radio show a couple years ago, and uh, you can find that on YouTube. He was saying that there's so many different interpretations of Sharia you can't really say that Islam teaches warfare against unbelievers. And I said, okay, can you point out one interpretation of Sharia that's mainstream, one school of Islamic jurisprudence, one sect, anything like that, that does not teach warfare against unbelievers? And of course he could not, because there is not one. But this indicates that uh, this is the kind of Christian that Muhammad Hijab wants. He wants somebody who has been thoroughly bamboozled and is useful to the Muslim community. And what's uh, even more interesting is that he is very useful. There is a YouTube channel called Muslim by Choice. And if you go there, you're going to find a lot of videos of James White attacking David Wood, attacking me, attacking other people who are not Muslims. But because we are not uh, with him in his uh, uh, strange subservience to Yasser Qadi, he has gone after us. And this is, the, the, of course, the Muslim by Choice channel loves this because it's a uh, non-Muslim who has uh, had dialogue with Muslims slamming other non-Muslims and, uh, in, in defense of the Muslims. And so you're absolutely right. Muhammad Hijab was saying you should surrender like James instead of being still an independent human being. Yeah, I just want to just quickly just quickly say here, thank you Robert. And I'm just I'm fascinated by the mass psychosis number one of the people who want to be deceived, but also of the very transparent contradiction of the abusers themselves. So just just very quickly here, we have a, a tale in our family, a personal story of a relative of ours. When Stalin died, there was a certain member of our family that was crying 
sobbing inconsolably because Stalin had died. The other family member was ripping up portraits of Stalin and flushing them down the toilet. And the, the person that was sobbing reprimanded the toilet flusher and said, you're going to get us all killed. Now, uh-huh. so, so the way that these two ideas exist at the same time, so you're worshipping Stalin. Now, but wait a minute, don't criticize Stalin. You're going to get us killed. You're going to get us killed, right? So you see where I'm going with this. So this is, this is the Westerner here that we're discussing right now in the face of jihad. But what fascinates me, um, very quickly here, when I was doing some work with the Counter-Jihad Coalition down on 3rd Street Promenade with the hero Steve Amundsen, and we were uh, distributing information, handing out flyers about Islam, etc., the Muslims would often come up with smiles and say, it's not true, this is not true, Islam is religion of peace, Islam is religion of peace. And then as I continued to argue them near the end, I can't tell you how many times this happened, they make the throat sign to me. If you do not get out of here and you do not get rid of this stuff, we're coming back, we're going to do you in. So it's very interesting. And then also that I should, you know, I'm arguing about the Koran with them and then near the end they're telling me I should never touch a Koran because I'm dirty and all this stuff. I could go on and on about that. My point here That's is... That's in the Quran, chapter 9, verse 28. Right. So it just... just it, it, Thank you. So my point here is that... Um, I'm connecting all this, by the way, here. So, so the, they come at us and say, Islam's religion of peace, but if you don't get out of here, we're going to do you in. And, and, and then... Now, wait a minute. Now, some of the police officers were fantastic. I don't mean this towards all police. Some of the police were fantastic. But there were a few occasions where the police had taken me to the side and said, why do you keep coming down here? Like, we're not going to be able to save you one of these nights. So it's better for you not to come around here. But they were hostile towards me and not towards... Uh, the Muslims that were coming down and make and yeah, posing a threat to us, right? So that's very interesting. And finally, just how I'm wrapping this up here. So Muhammad Hijab shows up to debate David Wood overall on one level to show that Islam is a religion of peace, but he won't shake his hand. David extends his hand to him. He won't shake his hand before the debate. Spends the entire interview demeaning and humiliating him. Where I'm going with all this and concluding, Robert, so they come to us with smiles saying, you're wrong, we're going to show you how peaceful we are. And yet, throughout the entire dialogue... We are, they humiliate us and show us that they're actually violent and aggressive and imperialistic. How do those two, how do they synthesize those two thoughts? Well, you got, it's really the same thing. It's not a contradiction in their mind. Uh-huh. Because fooling uh, the unbeliever and not telling the truth to the unbeliever is, of course, something that's in the defense of Islam, Right. The whole the, the passage that establishes this is chapter 3, verse 28, and it says, Let not the believers take unbelievers as their friends and protectors in preference to believers. Whoever does this has nothing to do with Allah, unless you are doing it to guard yourselves against them. And that's the phrase, unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them, that you get the commentators, the companion of Muhammad, Abu Ad-Darda, who said, we, this means we smile in the faces of some people, but behind their backs we curse them. But you're doing it to guard yourselves against them, you see. And the uh, classic explanations 
of this passage in the Tafsir, the commentaries on the Quran by Muslim scholars that are mainstream. They say that you do this when the Islam is under threat, when the Muslims are, are, are under threat from the non-believers. And so you have to protect Islam, and that's why you do deceive the unbelievers. And so he's protecting Islam when he tells you that Islam is peaceful and so on, because that will keep people ignorant and complacent about the jihad threat. But at the same time, when you keep going, then he also has to protect Islam from you if you're blaspheming or something of that kind by threatening you or even killing you. And so it's all the same thing. There's no inconsistency in that in Muhammad Hijab's mind at all. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Gentlemen, I got, a, I got a question. Isn't it true that yeah. a lot of people are afraid to speak out against Islam because they're afraid of a fatwa being placed on them? Much like the uh, oh, there's no doubt. author of oh, the yeah. Santana versus Simon Rashi. Yeah, well, imagine I, I Joy Behar. Uh, imagine Robert Joy Behar when she was making fun of Spence <laughs> on The View. And um, and uh, she was like, oh, if you're listening to Jesus, aren't you mentally ill? Can, uh, excuse me, I meant Pence. Can you imagine yeah. if... If Joy Behar, that's because I'm thinking of Robert Spencer, so easy mistake to make. But imagine, Robert, <laughs> if like um, Robert, imagine if Joy Behar said, "Oh, the Muslims listening to Muhammad and here's Allah. Isn't that a mental illness?" Right? Well, you know, she knows better than to say that. She's already internalized the idea that you you must not criticize Islam. Because she is afraid of getting killed, and even she—I mean, she is full of cognitive dissonance in a way that Muhammad Hijab is not, because she is uh, seriously afraid of being killed, and that's why she would never mock Islam or criticize it. But at the same time, she'd be the first to tell you it's peaceful and that you're a bigot. I extended the show a few minutes because I'm having so much fun just listening to the two of you. I love it when I have my guests interview each other. Uh, There's a comment that was in the chat room from our friend Kel up in Canada, and she wanted to know, is it true, Robert, that uh, there was an imam that refused to debate you because he said that you knew more about Islam than the imam did? Yes, that actually happened. It was on the BBC, and it was when I was banned from Britain. And the, I was actually in, I had insomnia and I was up at it was three in the morning and I was working and I saw a notice come in from the BBC on Twitter. And of course, you know, it was 9 a.m. there or whatever. And uh, they were saying, we're going to be discussing the ban of uh, Pamela Geller and Robert Spencer from Britain uh, on this whatever show coming up in an hour. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm right here and they're going to be talking to some imam. And they're going to be talking to who knows who else. But they never contacted me. So I wrote them on Twitter and said, you're having this discussion about us without inviting either of us to participate. And that kind of embarrassed them. And so they actually did have me on at the last minute. And uh, you can find this on YouTube. There was one version of it on YouTube that had about a million views. And then YouTube took it down. But other people have put it back up. And uh, you can find it. There, the what happened was the host asked me uh, to, I think he was trying to set me up. I think he probably thought that I wouldn't be able to answer. But he asked me, what's the, your problem with the Quran? And so I, I recited some of the verses that are calling for warfare against unbelievers or beating your wife or 
that kind of thing. And then the host turned to the imam and said, well, what do you have to say to that? How do you explain these things? And he said, I'm not here to discuss that. I'm here to discuss this guy being banned from the country. And the, the host said, well, wait a minute, this is, this is the Quran. You're an imam. Surely you can talk about the Quran. And he said, that's his field, meaning me. <laughs> <laughs> he refused, that's like saying he you were a priest, we're not going to talk about the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, he just would not offer any alternative explanation uh, for the violent passages that I had quoted. And uh, so you can use that is public. Uh, it was a public discussion on the BBC, and you can find it on YouTube. Well, you know, we were discussing earlier with uh, Rabbi Spiro. Um, he has the website Caucus for America about the caravan on the southern border. And we keep on hearing people on the left and all this lamestream media saying there's no terrorists in there. There's no gang members. There's no criminals. And yet. Robert, didn't I hear that back in October, uh, Mexico arrested something like 100 ISIS fighters from that caravan? Yeah, that was Guatemala. Jimmy Morales, the president of Guatemala, said that uh, there had been 100 ISIS members arrested in his country. And, of course, they didn't go to Guatemala for the, for the waters. They went to Guatemala to join the caravan. And there was also an Univision reporter, the Spanish-language news service, who said that he witnessed Bangladeshis joining the caravan, and Bangladesh is a hotbed of ISIS. Then, just a couple weeks ago, in Laredo, Texas, in a 12-hour span, there were six Bangladeshis arrested trying to cross the border there. And that's, out of, uh, that's just one incident. There have been actually several hundred Bangladeshis arrested trying to cross the border at Laredo over the last couple of years. And so uh, this is a very real uh, problem, and it is very likely that there are jihadis among the caravan members. Well, Anderson Cooper well, did a one-hour feature on this last night and interviewed Steve Emerson on it. Really? That was a joke. That was a joke. Oh. So, uh-huh. so my point is... <laughs> you had to be gone. Well, my, my, my point is, have we ever seen this on MSNBC or CNN? And, Robert, oh, sure even not. could you add even what's so important, wonderful and important question that was asked, and can you add, you've done incredible, also great work on uh, on Hezbollah in South America and Latin America, right? Yeah, they're uh, working with the drug cartels in northern Mexico. This is why, actually, when I wrote uh, a book a few years back, The Complete Infidel's Guide to Iran, and I've got a section in there on Hezbollah, because Hezbollah, of course, is a wholly owned and operated subsidiary of the Islamic Republic of Iran, and I... Uh, quoted a bunch of news stories from Mexico of uh, various politicians who were opposed to the cartels trying to stop drug cartel activity, not only being murdered, but being beheaded. And this, of course, was a very clear indication that these guys are now being trained by Hezbollah and are picking up jihadist tactics. You know, it's funny because back in, I forget if it was 89, 90 or whatever, I remember seeing, this is long before 9-11, there was either Newsweek or, or a New York Times article about the southern border. And back then, like I said, long before 9-11 happened, they were talking about the southern border with OTMs, other than Mexicans crossing. And in that article yes. back then, it was talking about Korans and prayer shawls being found left in the desert. So 
So we knew as far back as the 90s that we were being infiltrated by terrorists at our southern border, and yet we have not acknowledged this fact openly, except for James O'Keefe crossing the Rio Grande wearing you know, a, a, a Saddam Hussein outfit. <laughs> yeah, I think it was an Osama bin Laden outfit, and uh, even worse. But, uh, yeah, this is something that's been known for years, and uh, people have written about it for years, that uh, there have, the OTM category, the other than Mexicans, is full of... Uh, uh, people who are from Iraq, from Pakistan, from Bangladesh, and so on, uh, jihadi hotspots. And uh, that's, no, that's no accident. It's very clear that they have recognized the vulnerability of our southern border and are taking advantage of it. And also down in South America, there is an area where three countries border each other, and it's become a no-man's land because we do know that Islamic terrorists are headquartered there, right? Yes, that's the triple frontier area, uh, the, the border area between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. And they, uh, it's that, that also is a Hezbollah area where uh, uh, the, the jihadis actually have essentially free reign because it's kind of a remote area. And because it is the uh, border uh, of the three countries, it's a bit of a no man's land, a kind of lawless place. And so the uh, jihadis have taken full advantage of that also. Well, you know, gentlemen, I did extend the show for a couple of minutes because I was having so much fun. Robert, your book out that people have to pick up and read first. Okay, we'll do it this way, okay, Jamie? Read first The History of Jihad from right. Mohammed to ISIS by Robert Spencer, which you can get up at jihadwatch.org. And then pick up the book, Jihadist Psychopath, which you can pick up at Jamie's website, Jamie Glazov. That last name is spelled G-L-A-Z-O-V. There's a link up on the show page to both of your uh, websites so people can go there and get your books and read your articles. Robert, you have tremendous amount of courage to go out there and be the face of the fight for us. And I hope people go to your site and help support you, sir. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure. Really, this was fun. And thanks, Jamie. Uh, uh, it, Jamie's book, once again, is really one of the most remarkable books I've ever read, and so I cannot recommend it more highly. You know, my favorite is when Robert Spencer praises my work, but uh, but Robert is being very humble. Robert, one of these days you have to tell everybody about the musical instruments you play. <laughs> I haven't played in years. As a matter of fact, I just hauled the soprano sax out just a there few days go. ago, and... Uh, I'm trying to get back some lip. Um, it's going to be a while, but uh, I would hope to be pl- able to play again. Um, it's been a long time, but in the 90s... Can we I come back on and Robert plays the sax then? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a Bill Clinton moment to play the sax on air. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we'll have to try that. Only without my, the internet. Uh, co-host Curtis plays... My co-host Curtis also plays several instruments, and I used to play the violin, viola, and cello until I broke my hands riding a motorcycle. Uh, that killed that oh career. <laughs> but <laughs> another story for another day. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you. And you know, majority of people listen to the show, listen to the podcast later on in archives. So the links are out there. It's up on YouTube and Facebook. The videos are already up there playing. So they can see your smiling faces as we did the interview. And I want to thank you both for joining us and welcome you both back again. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, call us anytime. We'll take this act on the road. All right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Robert and I are sort of like right. Abbott and Costello. We're the Abbott and Costello <laughs> counter she had comedy hour. I'm the fat one, well, but I I'm can, working I on it. I can make it worse. I can just uh, text over to Mike Cutler and tell him to pop over. <laughs> really, have, and forget about it. Once Mike starts, no one gets in a word edgewise. He's been like that since We're I've known need him for more 30 martinis. years. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Uh, okay, God bless. You. It was a pleasure. Enjoy your break. All right. Robert Spencer, check him out on jihadwatch.org. And Jamie Glazov, check out his website, frontpagemag.com and jamieglazov.com. Check out both of their books. Download them because you can get them on Kindle and carry them around in your smart device. Uh, we're going to be back here on Tuesday, Curtis. And we got Dr. Paul Nathanson is going to be talking to us about us, more about Ms. Andre. And our final show before we go on hiatus, and this is big news, our final show is going to be with Corey Landowski and Milo Yiannopoulos. So they are confirmed for our final show before we go on a, a bit of a vacation. So oh, check yeah, out our final yeah. two shows before we take a little, little, a little cat nap for a little while. But we'll be back better and stronger. So, Curtis, I'll be talking with you and enjoy your weekend. Yeah. And uh, we'll be back to ask Michael a question. Yeah, Cal, you're right. Ask Mike Cutler a question and go off and do a load of laundry. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> so I'll leave you all with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. So have a great weekend, and I say with that, good night and God bless. <laughs>